0: is our text today. Genesis 34. Go ahead and begin finding your way there and pray for my voice. More importantly, pray that God's voice would penetrate your heart because you definitely need to hear from Him today, not me. Amen. Amen. Okay. Genesis 34 is one of the darkest chapters in the Bible. Its main point is really struggle with crystallizing a main point for this message, to be honest with you. Its main point, I think broadly speaking, at least one of the things Moses is at pains to do throughout Genesis and here yet again. He could just skip over stories like this. He could have easily just moved from <clears throat> 33 into really into the narrative of Joseph's life starting in 37 through the end of the book. But Moses is at pains again and again and again in Genesis to show us that God's relationship with His people is not built on their morality. (laughs) It's not built on their performance and their goodness and their righteousness. It's built on His grace. Period. That God enters into a relationship with sinners is is good news, amen, and it's all over Genesis because these covenant people, these covenant members, you know, it's not like they were bad guys and then they have this covenant thing happen and then now they're good guys. No, they're in the covenant and they still do evil things like we're going to see today. In Genesis 34, something objectively evil and reprehensible happens. And... Uh, the response to that evil thing by the quote-unquote good guys is also evil and reprehensible. But again, Moses doesn't include this story because he approves of what's done here. And he doesn't include this story just to teach us something about family honor. Family honor is a good thing. That's not what he's after here. Moses includes this story, as I say, to remind us that God's relationship with his people is built on grace, not his people's stellar moral abilities. So, in this chapter, we're going to break it into three sections. We'll see first the transgression, verses 1 through 7. Transgression, 1 through 7. Then, secondly, we'll see a negotiation, verses 8 through 24. A negotiation, 8 through 24. Then, thirdly, retribution, verses 25 through 31. Retribution, 25 through 31. So, transgression, negotiation, retribution. Those are our three points, the three sections of this chapter. Number one, transgression, verses 1 through 7. Hope you have a Bible, have it open, keep it open. I'm going to do my best to keep our eyes on the text. Genesis 34, verse 1. Now Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had born to Jacob, went out to see the women of the land. And when Shechem, the son of Hamor, the Hivite, the prince of the land, saw her, he seized her and lay with her and humiliated her. And his soul was drawn to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob. He loved the young woman and spoke tenderly to her. So Shechem spoke to his father Hamor, saying, Get me this girl for my wife. Verse 5, Now Jacob heard that he had defiled his daughter Dinah, but his sons were with his livestock in the field, So Jacob held his peace until they came. And Hamor, the father of Shechem, went out to Jacob to speak with him. The sons of Jacob had come in from the field as soon as they heard of it. And the men were indignant indignant, and very angry because he had done an outrageous thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter. For such a thing must not be done. Number one, we see a terrible transgression. Shechem, like many men today, saw a beautiful woman and assumed that it was his right to do what he wanted with her. Verse 2 may not use the word rape, but how else would you describe a man seizing a woman to sleep with her, leaving her humiliated? But then we read verses 3 through 4, and we think, oh, well, turns out Shechem loves her. Did you see that? His soul was drawn to Dinah. He loved the young woman. He spoke tenderly to her. He loves her. He wants to marry her. So what he did to her is okay. No, it's not. No, it's not. Are we clear on that? No, it's not okay what he did to her. He doesn't love her or he wouldn't have raped her. He would have gone to her family first, told them he wanted to marry her. They could have settled on a bride price. Done it that way. But Shechem didn't want to take no for an answer. He saw what he wanted and he took it. This is the kind of possessiveness, a picture of the kind of possessiveness that often follows sexual assault. If statistics are true, that applies to many of us in the room today. And I just want to say very publicly that we would love to walk with you. If you've never shared or talked or prayed with anyone about that, please come see me or my wife, Susie. We would love to walk with you through that. After an incident like this, there's often a honeymoon period where the abuser wants to pull the person in and make them think that they're great. This abusive and controlling person will often do something horrible then make it seem like everything is all right, that they're not a bad person after all. And if the victim disagrees, well then they're blamed for not being a loving or forgiving person. So let's just be crystal clear about what happened here. Shechem took what he wanted, and then he pretended like he loved her. And this, by the way, was probably very normal in Canaan. They're in the land of Canaan now, surrounded by Canaanites. So this kind of sexual morality would have been very normal. It's almost like (laughs) the way the text just states this, it's like this just happened, you know. Guys just did this, and then you got married. No big deal. It's just what you did. Of course, as we're going to see, the Israelites thought differently, Christians think differently, God's people think differently than that. Now skeptics will often read stories like this in the Bible and say that the Bible affirms the abuse of women. But actually this story teaches the very opposite. We're going to see that in just a few moments. One writer says it this way, We must distinguish between what the Bible reports and what it supports between what it asserts and what it authorizes. Just because the Bible reports something does not mean that it supports what it reports. End quote. Does that make sense? Just because the Bible reports something doesn't mean it says, this is okay. Verse 7 makes it crystal clear how God's people are thinking about this even then. Sons of Jacob, Jacob coming from the field, heard of it, they were... Indignant and very angry because he had done an outrageous thing in Israel. Keep in mind, Israel is just a a growing family at this point. So it's almost like Moses, there's not really a nation of Israel yet. So Moses is putting this in there to say, this is not how God's people have ever or will ever act or think. For such a thing must not be done. This kind of behavior is never to be condoned in Israel. Interestingly, the sequence of, uh, back to verse 2, excuse me, yeah, 2, 2, the sequence of seeing then seizing is the same sequence we find over in Genesis 6. Remember when the sons of God come, they see the daughters of men and they take them. They see and they take. Same thing we saw in Genesis 3. Eve sees the fruit, she takes it and eats This is a pattern throughout the Bible, throughout your life, my life. First comes the desire, then the action when the lust is not checked. This pattern lives in our hearts and minds when we see something we want, but know we shouldn't have, but take it anyway. And Satan is very busy trying to convince us that the thing we need is the thing that God forbids. In other words, he wants us to think like Shechem and Eve, the sons of God. He wants us to think that the thing we really need, despite it being the thing God forbids, the thing we really need is what we should take and have. He even offers promises for our joy that would contradict God's promises for our joy. Of course, though, when we follow his lies, he turns it around on us and accuses us for not believing, excuse me, accuses us for believing his promises. To make matters worse in this situation, when Jacob finds out what happened, he doesn't do anything. Verse 5. Now, Jacob heard that he had defiled his daughter Dinah, <clears throat> but his sons were with his livestock and his were with his livestock in the field, so Jacob held his peace until they came. Now I have a daughter, you know, and I have sons, and I think I think one day, Lord willing, those sons will protect their sister. We're trying to teach them that. But I tell you what, I don't need I don't need to wait on my sons to to do something for my daughter. For some reason, Jacob held his peace until his sons got back. Verse 30 at the end of the chapter is going to make it more clear for us what, it, what he's up to. Why doesn't he respond with shock and out, outrage like his sons? Interestingly, in chapter 37, when Jacob finds out about Joseph's apparent death, and remember who Joseph is. Joseph is his favorite son. In 37, when he finds out about Joseph's death, he tears his clothes, puts on sackcloth and ashes, He even refuses to be comforted by his other children. He mourns for a long time. There's nothing going on here like that. Perhaps further evidence of Jacob's favoritism. What we do know is that a non reaction like this is a reaction. Do you see that? A non reaction, a non decision is a decision. (laughs) A non-reaction is a reaction. It's choosing not to do something. And that can be extremely hurtful and even more damaging to a victim like Dinah if the people closest to her don't fight for her. Then, of course, Hamor comes in in verse 6. He starts the conversation about Shechem marrying the girl he raped. Again, it's just, it's so normal. Like, okay, that happened. Let me go talk to Jacob. We'll work out a marriage. (laughs) Verse 7, no, that's not how it's going to go down. The, uh, The sons come home. They respond in the opposite way Jacob did. They're indignant and very angry over this outrageous thing that has been done to their sister. It's crystal clear. Moses is making it crystal clear how these brothers felt about what had happened to their sister. Indignant and very angry. We all get angry. I mean, we get angry every day. Do you remember the last time you were indignant? (laughs) You were so full of rage that you maybe wanted to punch something? That's the kind of anger that they have here. Because this was an outrageous thing, a thing that should not be done in Israel. This is the kind of reaction every man should feel when they learn of a woman who's been hurt. I pray that our church increasingly becomes a place where women feel and know and believe that men are their protectors. We're here to protect women, not hurt them. So, that's number one. We've seen A terrible transgression. Number two, the negotiation. This is the longest section here, verses 8 through 24. Negotiation. Verse 8, But Hamor spoke with them, saying, The soul of my son Shechem longs for your daughter. Please give her to him to be his wife. Make marriages with us. Give your daughters to us. And take our daughters for yourselves. You shall dwell with us, and the land shall be open to you. Dwell and trade in it. And get property in it. Shechem also said to her father's uh, to, uh, to her father and to her brothers. Let me find favor in your eyes. That whatever you say to me, I will give. Ask for as great a bride price and gift as you will, and I will give whatever you say to me. Whatever you say to me. Only give me the young woman to be my wife. Verse 13, the sons of Jacob answered Shechem and his father Hamor deceitfully, because he had defiled their sister Dinah. They said to them, we cannot do this thing to give our sister to one who is uncircumcised, for that would be a disgrace to us. Only on this condition will we agree with you, that you will become as we are by every male among you being circumcised. Then we will give our daughters to you, and we will take your daughters to ourselves, and we will dwell with you and become one people. But if you will not listen to us and be circumcised, then we will take our daughter and we will be gone. 18, their words pleased Hamor and Hamor's son Shechem. The young man did not delay to do the thing because he delighted in Jacob's daughter. Now he was the most honored of all his father's house. Do you see how differently pagans think this kind of man was the most honorable man in the house? So Hamor and his son Shechem 20 came to the gate of their city and spoke to the men of their city saying these men are at peace with us let them dwell in the land and trade in it for behold the land is large enough for them let us take their daughters as wives and let us give them our daughters only on this condition will the men agree to dwell with us to become one people when every male among us is circumcised as they are circumcised will not their livestock their property and all their beasts be ours only let us agree with them and they will dwell with us. And all who went out of the gate of his city listened to Hamor and his son Shechem, and every male was circumcised, all who went out of the gate of his city. So the negotiation starts with Hamor and Shechem negotiating with Jacob and his sons over Dinah. Hamor seems to think that since Shechem longs to be with Dinah, then she should be given to him to be his wife. Their thinking is, okay, so there was a forcible rape, but that's not a big deal. Nothing that a follow-up marriage can't fix. As I said, this kind of sexual immorality and evil is what characterized the pagan Canaanites and should be seen as outrageous among God's people. Let me state it. If I haven't been clear enough already, I'll say it again. Again even more directly. Men, just because you want something doesn't mean that you should have it. Just because you want something doesn't mean that you should have it. Desires are not rights. Desires are not rights. Husbands, If we start manipulating and pouting and whining when your wife, our wife, doesn't give you, give us what we want, then our actions look more like these Canaanites. So what I'm trying to say is that Hamor's logic is wrong. Just because his son longs to be with Dinah doesn't mean he gets to be with Dinah considering what he did to her. They come and they offer lands and marriages and a great bride price. Their offer seems really generous. But did you notice the one thing they didn't mention? There in uh, 8 through 12. They didn't mention anything about what Shechem had done to Dinah. (laughs) They left that part conveniently out. There's no mentions... No mention of Shechem's humiliation of Dinah. No apology. The the offer here doesn't contain one hint that what Shechem did to Dinah was evil or reprehensible. They aren't interested in making things right. They're only interested in making things go away. And Jacob's sons aren't having anything of this. So verse 13, Moses makes it clear to us, the reader, that what they're about to propose is a deceitful scheme. 13, the sons of Jacob answered Shechem and his father, Hamor, deceitfully. Why? Because he had defiled their sister Dinah. So everything they're about to say is not not entirely true. (laughs) And, And if you know the end of the story, you know where this is going. You'll find out in a second if you don't. So they make their counteroffer in verses 13 through 17. Jacob's sons make their counteroffer. Verse 13 says they answered deceitfully. This isn't the way we do things as the people of God. It's the way they did it here. Again, this is what the Bible reports, but not what it supports. Fighting fire with fire just makes bigger fires. Notice that it's Jacob's sons, not Jacob himself, who takes the lead in these negotiations. Did you see that? 13, the sons of Jacob, answered Shechem. It's almost like the sons have taken the father's spot. Jacob, again, for whatever reason, is on the sideline. His passivity in this whole account is baffling and wrong. Their offer is simple. They say, okay guys, um, thanks for that offer. We'll let you have Dinah. But what we want is for all the males in your city to be circumcised. Now back in Genesis 17, God gave Abraham and his family the covenant sign of circumcision to mark them off as his covenant people and to separate them from the rest of the nations. So, Is this the way we should use the covenant sign? Is this the way we should throw it around and barter and make deals with it? No, it's not. The way Jacob's sons are trying to use the covenant sign is a reversal of God's intention. They were offering circumcision as a means for these two families to become one people. They even say that in verse 16. We will dwell with you and become one people. Using the covenant sign as a ploy to kill your enemies is wicked. Remember how I told you this is one of the darkest chapters of the Bible. It's going to get even darker. You've been warmed. I know it's Christmas, guys. All right. I love Christmas. All right. Susie like won't stop decorating. I love it. (laughs) Bring on Christmas. But, you know what? We're in Genesis 34 this Sunday. I think God has something for us. And this is for free. Christmas is only beautiful if we understand how dark our hearts are. Right? The light of Christ doesn't mean anything to us if we don't understand that we are a lot more like these sons and Shechem and Hamor than we care to admit. That's for free. Using the covenant sign as a ploy to kill your enemies, is wicked. It'd be like using baptism to drown people. Then verses 18 through 24, Hamor and Shechem say, Okay, we'll do it. (laughs) 18, their words pleased Hamor, and Hamor's son Shechem, the young man did not delay. Do you see how twisted his thinking is? This guy who did that to her, he's just like, Okay, I'll do whatever I have to do to have her. It's not love. He just wants what he wants. He'll do whatever he has to do to take it, to have it. So they go back to their city. And uh, it says in verse 20, they came to the gate of their city, which is where all the business was done. They spoke to the men of the city, and they said, hey, these guys want to live here in peace. They want to have a relationship with us. All they ask is that we be circumcised. And oh, by the way, if we do this, you guys all stand to get rich. You see verse 23, will not their livestock, their property, and all their beasts be ours? Do you see what they're doing? And and granted, I don't blame them. I mean, what if I stood up like, all right, guys, we got to all do this. (laughs) You know, there'd be a little bit of a reward there on the other side of it. So they're, they're saying, hey, guys, you stand to gain monetarily, materially, Maybe even get some wives out of the deal if we all circumcise ourselves. But nowhere do they tell the men of the city why they need to do this. They don't mention anything about what Shechem did to Dinah. They leave that detail out. Uh, They they don't even say that, hey, this is what we're trying to do so that Shechem can have this girl. (laughs) They just leave that all out. Jacob's sons are being deceitful with Hamor and Shechem. And now Hamor and Shechem are being deceitful with their city. So the deceivers are themselves being deceived. That's negotiation, 8 through 24. Number three, retribution. Retribution, 25 through 31. Verse 25, on the third day, when they were sore... Two of the sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, took their swords, came against the city while it felt secure, killed all the males. They killed Hamor and his son Shechem with the sword and took Dinah out of Shechem's house and went away. The sons of Jacob came upon the slain and plundered the city because they had defiled their sister. They took their flocks and their herds, their donkeys and whatever was in the city and in the field. All their wealth, all their little ones and their wives, all that was in the houses, they captured and plundered. Then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, "You have brought trouble on me by making me stink to the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites and the parasites. My numbers are few, and if they gather themselves against me and attack me, I shall be destroyed." Both I and my household. But they said, should he treat our sister like a prostitute? Retribution. Jacob's sons bring retribution on Hamor and Shechem in their city. Dinah had six full-blooded brothers. I'll try to name them. It's uh, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, uh, Issachar, and Zebulun. Leah's sons were six. Um, It says only two, though, Simeon and Levi, went into the city to kill the males. Did you see that detail in verse 25? Two of the sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, because Leah had Dinah. So Dinah was Leah's daughter, Jacob's daughter, through Leah. (coughs) So why only Simeon and Levi? Why are they the only brothers who pick up swords and go into the city and kill all the males? Well, we're not sure why. It doesn't say. But it is likely that Moses is giving us these details. Moses is a genius, in my opinion. He's giving, nothing is wasted in the Pentateuch. He's giving us these details, I think, because um, he's trying to show us here that the second and third-born sons of Jacob have disqualified themselves from kingship. In the next chapter, chapter 35, we'll see next week, we'll see that his firstborn son, Reuben, also does something to disqualify himself. So the first three sons born to Jacob are acting in ways that disqualify themselves from being king. Moses is making a case for why the king must come through Jacob's fourthborn son, namely Judah. Judah. And as we're going to learn at the end of Genesis, which we'll get into in the spring, Judah is portrayed as the exact opposite of Reuben, Simeon, and Levi. Moses is preparing us to understand why someone from the tribe of Judah will be king. Isn't it good that Christ... It's more like Judah than these others. Isn't it good and wise of God to send his son through the tribe of Judah? Who wasn't like these sons? Now, there may also be some anticipation of the way that the descendant of the seed of Jacob will visit wrath upon his enemies through his victory on the third day. Do you notice the timing again? Verse 25, on the third day. You'll see that throughout Scripture. Scripture. On the third day, of course, uh, is when these men would be most sore. The pain from the operation would have been most intense. Fever would have likely set in, making the men totally incapacitated and unable to fight back. But there's also anticipation here that a descendant from the seed of Jacob will visit wrath on his enemies through his victory on the third day. Now, the other sons do join in. 27 through 29 says, The sons of Jacob, so it seems like all the sons come and plunder and pillage the city. So no one's innocent here. Judah wasn't innocent. It appears that all the brothers came and were part of this plundering, finishing what uh, Simeon and Levi started. And then 30 gives us Jacob's response. Jacob says, just to the two, interestingly, just to the two who did the killing. Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, and by the way, when Jacob's on his deathbed and he gives out his prophecies over his 12 sons, he's going to have very strong words for Simeon and Levi. He never forgets this moment. Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, you have brought trouble on me by making me stink to the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites and the Perizzites. My numbers are few. If they gather themselves against me and attack me, I shall be destroyed, both I and my household. And in one sense, we're like, okay, that makes sense. Jacob, you've got a family to think about. <clears throat> the, the nations around you, the Canaanites and the Perizzites, are way bigger than you. Let's not make them all mad at you and kill you. But, you know, there's something to be said about sacrificial love. A, fa- a father loving his daughter so much that he'll do whatever he has to do to respect her and promotes her honor. Right? Jacob's concerns. Jacob's concerns are pragmatic, not moral. He's not mentioning the evil. What's happened? He's saying, "Guys, you know, this is going to go bad for us now." Why'd you do this? His concerns are more practical, pragmatic, not moral or ethical. He seems to be more interested in peace than honor. I'll tell you, I want peace. Don't we want peace? But I hope we want honor more than peace. Peace without honor is no peace at all. As one commentator notes, it's ironic to hear Jacob venting his disgust over Simeon and Levi's failure to honor their word, for he had done exactly that on more than one occasion. (laughs) Just last chapter, Jacob meets Esau, it's this warm embrace, You know, and Esau's like, come back with me to Seir. Jacob's like, "Okay, I'll be there in a little while. Esau goes back to Seir. The text says Jacob goes to the land of Canaan. He totally lies to his brother that he's just reconciled with. Jacob's ambivalence here is astounding to me. I don't understand it. But it's also very, very encouraging, as I said at the beginning, because this is God's covenant partner. God doesn't kick Jacob out every time he screws up. And praise God he doesn't do that with you or me. Well, oh, you blew it again. You're out. I'll find somebody better. <laughs> praise God he doesn't do that. What if he did that? This room would be empty this morning, right? Or what would we, what would we be singing about if God acted like that? No, God enters into covenant with people who fell him repeatedly. Simeon and Levi get the last word, in verse 31. But they said, should he? They don't even use his name. They don't even say Shechem. Should he treat our sister like a prostitute? And then Moses just lets it stand right there. He lets their rhetorical question stand as a fitting end to this tragic event. Jacob, it seems, has no response. So we've seen the transgression, the negotiation, the retribution. This kind of story in the Old Testament begs an important question for us to ask as Christians. Is a story like this meant to teach us how we should treat our enemies? Is this how we're to treat our enemies? The simple answer is no, it's not. Of course, Jesus says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. <clears throat> Israel as a nation was meant to enact God's justice on the earth. But things shifted when Jesus came. He as the new and perfect Israel came to defeat even greater threats to God's people, namely sin, Satan, and death. He did this by dying on the cross and then rising again on the third day. Jesus will come again, and when he comes again at his second advent, he will kill all of God's enemies and throw them into the lake of fire. But until then, Paul makes it clear, as Michael prayed and Preston read in Romans 12, that our job until that day is to repay no one evil for evil. I mean, you don't have to know a bunch about how to interpret the Bible to know what that means. Don't repay someone evil for evil. And never avenge ourselves. This is astounding. Don't ever seek revenge. What? What? Never, this is Paul's word, never avenge yourself. Does that mean just roll over and just take everything? No, it doesn't mean that. There are times and places when authorities need to be involved, conversations need to happen, sin needs to be called sin. But as Christians, Paul says we leave Ultimate consequences to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. In other words, Paul says, we don't have to pay people back because God will one day. I know some of you, even around this time of year, you've got family that you're you're disjointed from. You've got quote unquote enemies, maybe within your own family, maybe a friend group, maybe people you go to school with or work with. And our knee-jerk reaction is to get revenge and make sure we're on top and to win. And Paul is just plainly saying, no, you don't. No, you don't. You don't have to pay people back. One day God will pay people back. Paul goes further. He says something surprising. He says, to the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. He says, don't be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Coming from the guy who killed Christians before he was converted to Christ. You see, something shifted in Paul. Before he was a Christian, I think Paul would have taught this. You'd be like, yeah, God's enemies. That's what he was doing. Christians were seen as God's enemies. Paul thought he was doing God's work when he stood there and watched Stephen be stoned to death. People were throwing rocks at him until he died. And Paul gave his approval. He's on his way to Damascus to kill more Christians. Thinking he's doing God's work. Thinking that he's performing righteousness. But something shifted in Paul when he saw the glory of Jesus. Something shifted in his thinking and his feeling, his calculating when he received grace from Jesus Christ. And I hope that something has shifted in you too. And if you've seen the glory and received the grace of Christ, I think it has. We, we, We feel like hurting people who hurt us. That, that was a we, so that's me and you. We feel like hurting people who hurt us. True or not true? You're like, John, I would never hurt a fly. Whatever, God knows your thoughts. Now, suppressing those feelings is probably not healthy or wise. If you're not processing those things, they'll start to own you and turn you into something you don't want to be. But no matter what we feel, we must remember that God in Christ gave us mercy instead of punishment. He could have hurt us for how we've dishonored him, defiled his holy name. But he gave us grace instead. So something shifts in our hearts and our minds like it did with Paul. We're all of a sudden marked off as people who look like our Savior. When we're hurt, we bless. When we're abused, we pray. When we're sinned against, we forgive. If we don't forgive our enemies, we'll start to become like them. In his new book on forgiveness, Tim Keller says, If you don't deal with your wrath through forgiveness, wrath can make you a wraith. Look that up, I'm not going to describe that, or watch Lord of the Rings. Wrath can make you a wraith, turning you slowly but surely into a restless spirit, into someone who's controlled by the past, someone who's haunted, end quote. So when we fail to forgive, we fail to look like Christ, and we're harming ourselves when we carry that stuff around with us when we do forgive we show the world what the true Israel Jesus Christ is like this means that i love how you prayed this michael what did you say the church is heaven on earth amen and amen when the church one of the things that makes that true is that we're forgiving people heaven is a place of the forgiven Heaven is where the forgiven live. So the church, therefore, is a place of forgiving people. This means that local churches like ours should be known for our mercy, not our muscle. Known for our love, not our scorekeeping. Known for our forgiveness, not our grudge holding and revenge and cold shouldering and Refusal to address the elephant in the room and have the hard, awkward conversation and make things right doesn't mean you have to be best friends with everyone. It does not mean that, but it does mean that you have to forgive. And Paul is very plain that you repay no one evil for evil. As I said at the beginning, this is one of the darkest chapters in the Bible. But one of the things this chapter is doing is setting up a problem that's going to be resolved in the last section of Genesis, the narrative of Joseph's life. That's chapter 37 through 50. Moses is setting us up with a problem that's going to be resolved with the Joseph narrative. You see, Jacob's sons are violent and unrighteous Men and their sin risk tearing their family apart. The story of Joseph, however, is the narrative where God provides a response to Israel's own wickedness. Joseph redeems and transforms his family by not being like his family. He's not a man of vengeance, not a man of violence. He transforms his family by forgiving them. You remember the story. He's second in command in Egypt. His brothers come. He could have easily had them killed on the spot. And he's broken over what to do. He literally wails and weeps. The people in the palace don't know what's going on with Joseph. What does he do? He comes out and he makes it right. He forgives them. He gives them the thing they least deserve. This chapter is showing us Just how unrighteous God's people are. The resolution to this unrighteousness, to this problem is coming in the next section. Someone from within the family must be unlike the family in order to redeem the family. And this redeemer, Joseph, of course points forward to another redeemer, another member of Jacob's family who was unlike all his family members. All Israel and all the world has acted unrighteously, yet there's one who hasn't. And this one, Jesus Christ, the seed of the woman, the offspring of Abraham, the true and greater Israel, He stepped forward to redeem His family by not being like His family. Jesus is not a man of violence, but a man of peace. He's not a man of vengeance, but a man of forgiveness. He's not a man of deceitfulness, but a man of truth. He's not a man of sin, but a man of righteousness. He's not like his brothers, but came to save his brothers. Praise God for the Son of Israel who's not like Israel's other sons. Let's pray together. Father, there's a lot of heavy things coming at us from this chapter. Thank you for not leaving out the hard parts. Thank you for this chapter that I hope, I pray, encourages us, especially as men, to be honorable to do the right thing no matter what, no matter who's watching or not watching, to be men of integrity and honor. Lord, I pray that this chapter would encourage us to do the Lord's work in the Lord's way. Jacob's sons didn't do it the Lord's way. One day, Lord Jesus, you will return. And on that day, you'll be the man of salvation for your people and the man of vengeance for all your enemies. But today, as long as it is today, salvation is available for all who see their need. So I pray that right now, there there are probably some even in the room this morning who, who need Christ. Give them a heart to repent of their sins and embrace Christ. Convict them of their sinfulness. May we, all of us, never suppose that we are better than these characters in the Bible. Who knows what we would have done. And thank You for being a God who relates to Your covenant people on the foundation of grace, from the foundation of grace. Thank You for sticking with us. Thank you for not leaving us. Please help us to look more like you. Help our church to reflect your mercy and kindness and patience. As Jesus says, if we don't forgive our brothers, how can God forgive us? So God, make us a forgiving people. May we be quick to seek reconciliation without delay. And help us to rejoice in Christ now as we move to the Lord's table. Help us to rejoice and reflect on the cross of Jesus Christ. Holy Spirit, we need your help. Turn our eyes to Jesus, we pray in his name. Amen.